turn once again to the book of Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 17 to 41 this morning. And as you turn there, uh, Alexander Schmemann, uh, he's a Christian in the Orthodox tradition. He wrote an interesting book, to me anyway, called For the Life of the World. Uh, and in it, he talks about how the church is one of Jesus's good gifts to the world because it's one of the main ways that Jesus brings the life of God into the world. For Schmemann, the church is the place where Jesus's love, mercy, wisdom, forgiveness, grace, hospitality, justice, all of that is lived out and given as a gift to all of creation. Uh, and on that point, uh, I agree with him, uh, at least in theory. Uh, the church is meant to be a two-way door. Uh, it's a way for people to meet Jesus. It's also a way for Jesus to go out into the world and meet people and give them his life. Uh, the church is meant to be a place where Jesus' resurrecting life enters into a world broken by despair, disunity, and death. And it's meant to do this by the way that the church lives together with Jesus in the world. As we've been talking about for the last few weeks, the way we live together is a way that Jesus brings his resurrection life into our families, into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, and ultimately out into the whole wide world. When we pray, for example, both individually and together, part of what we are doing when we pray is we are bringing our conflicts to Jesus. We're bringing our needs to Jesus, our cares to Jesus, and we are asking him to act according to his resurrecting life. So one of the ways that Jesus enters the world is through the church's prayer life. Another way is through our hospitality, which we've been talking about. When we welcome each other, when we share our burdens, when we care for each other's needs, uh, when we welcome our neighbors into our lives, when we invite them to our, our growth groups in the church and to dinner or out to coffee, when we live with each other, uh, that is a way that the love of Jesus can be brought to each other and to our neighbors. It's a way that the life of Jesus enters into the world through the church's hospitality. The same when we share the gospel itself. When we talk to people, people about the, the hope of the resurrection and the eternal life and the forgiveness of sins that is found in, in Jesus. When we offer them uh, that grace and uh, we offer that to each other and to our colleagues and our fellow students and our teammates and our siblings, that is a way that the grace-filled life of Jesus enters into the world through the sharing of, of the gospel. And that's why the life of the church and the discipleship of the church is so important. The way we live with Jesus together and the healthier our life together is, the more completely the life of Jesus enters into our communities through us. Uh, which is not to say that Jesus can't do it apart from the church. He does do it apart from the church, praise God. Uh, but why would we want him to? Don't we want to partner as closely as possible to Jesus as he brings his life into the world? I do. Uh, this morning in our passage, we're going to see two things. One big picture thing, that's most of the sermon. One small picture thing, that's the end. Uh, the big picture thing we're going to look at is how the church grows when it lives out its life with Christ well. By causing some of even the most profound skeptics to ask, what if this is from God? Like, What if God really is there with them? What if the thing I'm experiencing 
when I'm in the presence of the church is Jesus. That's the big picture thing we're going to look at this morning, how the church's life together was forcing people to ask, is God really pouring his life out through this church? Is God in them? And the second thing we're going to look at, which is a small picture thing, at least in this passage, which is how the suffering the church sometimes experiences as it brings the life of Christ into the world can be a source of real joy. Uh, so let's look at all this together. The outline is there on the wall. We're going to look at preach all the words of this life. Second, what if this is from God? And then third, uh, finding joy in suffering for Jesus. Uh, so let's read Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. <clears throat> Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go! And stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors... But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, which means totally confused, uh, about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people of the, after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail." But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's Father, the reading of God's own word.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this word, uh, which we know uh, comes from you for our instruction and for our building up in the faith so that we might know you and come to follow you more closely and nearly, to love you more dearly. But Lord, we know that your word without your spirit's work in us uh, will not result in any change. But Lord, we want to be changed. And so we pray that your spirit now would bless the word to us, that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, and they all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> our passage begins with the high priest and the Sadducees jealous at the popularity of the apostles and at the growth of the church. And as a reminder, the high priests and the Sadducees, they were the ones who plotted the murder of Jesus and who back in chapter 4 had already arrested Peter and John and threatened to harm them if they didn't stop preaching about Jesus. Uh, so the high priest and the Sadducees, they're very dangerous people. They're actually murderers. But because the apostles prayed for help and boldness, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and because Jesus is faithful to the prayers of his people, the apostles continued to preach and teach in the temple openly in all of Jerusalem. And Jesus continued adding to the church. In fact, in verse 14, just before our text that we read this morning, we're told that uh, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. And I love that phrase, added to the Lord, right? Connected to Jesus. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Uh, so the church at this point, to give you an idea, is probably in the tens of thousands in terms of membership. And the high priests and the Sadducees are very upset about that growth. They're jealous of it. And so they use their power to arrest the apostles and put them in jail. And while in jail, we're told in verse 19 that during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. What does that mean exactly? What exactly is this life? Uh, I think most of us, if not all of us, probably think about this maybe a little too narrowly than we should as only referring to the forgiveness of sins, which is found in faith in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And that's not wrong. Uh, that's totally part of it. Part of the words of life, of this life, indeed the very foundation of the words of this life, is the good news that Jesus, God himself, entered the world as a vulnerable baby, had to flee from a war criminal and be a refugee in Egypt for a number of years, that he grew up as a man, the Bible says, who was acquainted with grief and suffering, who was misunderstood and even insulted by his own family at times. You may remember back in the Gospels when his mother and brothers came to get Jesus and they said to the people that he's crazy. Can you imagine your mom telling people you're crazy? But who in all of this suffering and all this hardship and all this trauma never sinned. Not once. Like Jesus did not once break God's command. He didn't once hate God. He didn't once hate his neighbor. Instead, he lived that perfect life while bearing on his shoulders the weight of the fall, living in compassion with those who misunderstood him, offering forgiveness to those who sinned against him. And then after being unjustly tried and accused, he died on the cross where he suffered on the cross in those hours of darkness, the entire wrath of hell for us so that his forgiveness uh, would not be simply his overlooking sin and pretending like it didn't exist, but actually dealing with it and bearing in himself the consequences for our 
brokenness, our hatred, our murder, our jealousy, our idolatry. And then three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead so he could put on a resurrection body that he will eventually share with all of his people at his return. And when he brings in the new heavens and the new earth and we walk uh, with him in bodies that will never age or die or be sick or weak ever again. And then Jesus gives all of this life and forgiveness and presence to us to be received, not because of what we've done or will do or who gave birth to us or who we gave birth to, but simply as a gift to be received by faith. When we trust in Jesus, we say that I believe that Jesus is God. I believe he lived for me, died for me, rose again for me, that he saved me, welcomes me. I believe in Jesus. We are saved and brought into this life. That is the foundation of the words of this life that the angel wants the apostles to preach, in which they will eventually preach to the Sadducees. Uh, but it's not all of this life. That's not all that God has in mind. The word translated there as life also has a sense of way of life, this way of living. Because along with faith, there's always repentance, right? The idea being that when I turn to Jesus, I turn toward new life in Jesus, and I turn from my old ways of living. I turn towards the way of Christ's life and away from a life of sin and selfishness. And what the angel is telling the apostles is not only to go out and preach about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, but also to go out and preach how to live as those who have faith in that Jesus, to preach about how to be disciples of Jesus, how to follow Jesus, how to live for Jesus, how to live with Jesus together in this broken world, which, as we've seen, means devoting ourselves to prayer, devoting ourselves to corporate worship, to Sabbath rest, to humble hospitality, to sacrificial care for the needy. It means learning how to live in mercy towards those who've sinned against us and how to take responsibility for our actions and repent to those whom we have sinned against. It's not only go out and tell people about eternal life with Jesus, but also about present life with Jesus, how to go out and live in the, in the world with Christ, both as those who give his gospel and those who live according to his gospel in the church. And so uh, many people in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, they loved this way of life. Uh, they're so glad that they could have Jesus's forgiveness and the church's forgiveness, right? That they could be welcomed into a community that embodied the forgiveness of Jesus for them, uh, they were so thankful that they could confess their sins to Jesus and to his people and find welcome from both and forgiveness in both and hospitality from both. And they found profound joy as they learned to join with the church in forgiving those who had sinned against them, how to lay down their bitterness and hurt and take up the freedom of the gospel as they lived with Jesus together with his people. They were transformed by the way the church helped them meet Jesus in prayer and hospitality and worship. The, the surrounding areas of Jerusalem loved this. Uh, but the Sadducees, the Sadducees, they're infuriated by this. Why? Uh, it doesn't sound like something that would be infuriating, doesn't? Uh, but you can see why in verse 28. So after they just discovered the apostles were released from prison with the door still locked, and I love that part of the story, 
Uh, and they found out they're back preaching in the temple. They sent guards to get them. But when the guards show up, they don't want to arrest them because they're afraid the crowd will stone them for preventing these guys from telling them about Jesus and forgiveness and how to become uh, like Jesus and how to live with him. Like, how dare you stop this good news from being preached to us? Let's stone them, which is not what Jesus would want them to do. But, you know, emotions are high at this point. So instead they asked them, hey, maybe they even asked them nicely, would you guys mind coming with us real quick so we don't get in trouble with our boss? And the apostles say, yeah, we'll go with you. And there standing before the high priests and the Sadducees and the council, we read in verse 28 why they are so mad. They say, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and... You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And there it is. Accountability. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. And kids, what they're saying there, it, what the Sadducees are saying is that the apostles were trying to make them be guilty of murdering Jesus. But kids, you're probably thinking, but they did murder Jesus. And the answer is, yeah, that's right. But they don't want to admit it. The Sadducees are angered by accountability. And every day as the church grew and more and more people believed that God used the murder of Jesus on a cross to accomplish their salvation, right? The more that they, more people believed that God used the evil actions of the high priests and the Sadducees Herod and Pilate and even the crowd of, of Israelites that were surrounding uh, the, the, the stage at that time calling for Jesus' crucifixion, the more people believed that God used those events to open the door of heaven's grace to everyone who called on Jesus' name, the more people thought that the Sadducees were filling a role in God's plan that the Sadducees didn't want to have. Their plan was not to be the ones who killed the Messiah, but who welcomed the Messiah. Their idea of themselves is not to be someone who plotted and schemed to kill, but who led people in godliness and in wisdom. They didn't want to face the truth. And it's hard to blame them, I guess. I mean, the Sadducees, the chief priests, as they're thinking about themselves, they've got to be thinking, like, we're the priests. We're the guardians of Israel's worship. We're the teachers, we're the pastors, we're the elders. Uh, don't we have this position because we know the Bible and we know theology? You see, the way the Sadducees and the priests thought of themselves and the way they actually lived, they were in conflict. But rather than face that conflict with honesty, rather than face it entrusting themselves to the grace of the God that they believed in, they sought to suppress the truth of fact so that they could live out the fantasy they have of the kind of person they were, people they were. Uh, but, but the more and more Christians were around the city talking about Jesus, telling the story, celebrating the story, the more they found themselves staring at a reflection that they did not like. You're trying to make us be guilty of the thing that we did, and we don't like it. Uh, a friend of mine in the uh, ministry, we have a saying. Sometimes we, uh, we pass this back and forth together, but we'll say that someone is sorry that I was offended that they were offensive. 
It's the kind of thing. I can't believe that you're mad about the thing that I did that you should be mad about. How dare you be mad at me for hurting you? That hurts me. <laughs> That's what they're doing. Uh, and then Peter, after telling them essentially that, you know, that even if they don't like it, they must keep preaching this gospel because this is the good news that brings salvation. And then after giving them the gospel, he says this in verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Ouch, right? Peter just told the high priest of Israel and the religious leaders that they do not have the Holy Spirit's witness because they aren't obeying Jesus. Is it any wonder why in verse 33 we're told uh, that when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them? Oh, I don't have the Holy Spirit? What if I send you to meet him? Then who doesn't have the Holy Spirit? That's what's going on. Now, before moving on to Gamaliel's speech in our second point, I, I just want to pause here and make sort of a side point. One of the main differences that we're seeing here between the Sadducees and the apostles is that the apostles are not afraid of accountability and the Sadducees are. See, the difference between the apostles and the Sadducees is not the apostles were righteous and the Sadducees were wicked. It's that the apostles repented of their sin and opened themselves up to Jesus for forgiveness and were vulnerable to those around them and asked for grace and mercy. And the Sadducees said, we don't want any of that. The apostles are open to accountability. The Sadducees are not. The apostles can face their mistakes. They can face their sins because they know and trust themselves to the grace of Jesus and to his mercy. And the Sadducees cannot. The Sadducees are terrified by their own sin. And that's why uh, while the church was, was addressing their problems, which we've talked about with you know, hard conversations, patience, prayer, a commitment to sacrificial hospitality, right? Like, we're, remember, we're not, we have a tendency to look at this particular moment in church history and envision it as sort of like this golden age where there are no problems. There's lots of problems, and the church is, in a, as they, is working through them with hard conversations, patience, accountability, repentance, forgiveness, and that is what is, God is using to create this culture of Christ-likeness. Uh, the Sadducees, they are choosing to live in self-righteous denial. And the terrible thing is the high priests and the Sadducees, they knew better. Remember, they led Israel in worship. They pronounced forgiveness to sinners. Every time they were in the, the tabernacle, they said, God forgives sins. God forgives you. God forgives you. God forgives you. They had a theology of grace and forgiveness that is free from God to those who follow him by faith that is intellectually very similar to our own. But here's the tragedy. They never adopted a way of life that brought that theology into practice that opened them, actually opened them up to God in confession and opened themselves up to God's people in accountability, relying on God's grace to take what was broken by them and in them and turn it into something beautiful and whole. And I know the Sadducees aren't Christians and that we are, but isn't it true that we can live like the Sadducees? Can't we live in denial of the truth and fight tooth and nail to keep from admitting our faults because we want to think of ourselves as being one kind of person, but our actions reveal us to be a different kind of person? And rather than say, oh man, God's grace is going to have to meet me here in my brokenness, 
we say, I don't want to be broken. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be accountable. I'm not going to repent. How dare you think that I need to repent or change? Can't we intellectually know the gospel, but be terrified of living by it? I think every Christian at some point in their life has that kind of experience where something happens, we do something, and we think this is something God's grace can't meet, and we shield and hide. And what the apostles are doing in their life in the church is that they are not shielding and hiding. They are opening. They are confessing. They are entrusting. And that produces an entirely different way of life by the grace of Christ. Uh, and I bring that up not only because that should sober us, but also because it really highlights Gamaliel's response here. This is our second point. What if this is from God? So Gamaliel is interesting. He's a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's a ruler of Israel, but he's not part of the priesthood. He's part of actually a reform movement in Israel that was aimed at spiritual reformation and transformation of God's people. That's what Pharisees were. It was a spiritual reformation movement. And what happens here is he's faced with this lived contrast between the church's way of life, which here is bold and humble, committed fully to Jesus and his righteousness, and yet is also radically open in that commitment, open to every kind of person, open, open about their sins, open to accountability, full of forgiveness and mercy and love and grace and compassion. And then he's faced with the way of life of the Sadducees, which is guarded, self-righteous, violent, hateful and afraid. And he's moved, I think, by the difference in their ways of living and interacting to make this speech. So he reminds them all of these other movements that were based on impressive personalities like Thutis and Judas, Gal Judas the Galilean, and they all came to nothing. And so he comes up with this solution in verse 38. He says this, I'll read it. So in the present case, I tell you to keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So his solution is essentially don't act, wait. If this isn't from God, God will take care of it. If it is from God, you can't stop it. In fact, you might even be found to opposing God, which, into, which hints that he thinks that maybe God is, is in this. It's a powerful answer. It's a profound solution. My question is, what made Gamaliel even consider the possibility that this is of God? Because this is not the kind of solution you take to every problem, right? If some guy is going along uh, hurting people, you wouldn't think, well, we should let it go because maybe it's from God. Like we would know immediately this is not from God and it needs to be stopped. This is the kind of solution you take to an issue where you think God might be at work here and I don't see it yet. Let's step back and see what God does. Why does Gamaliel believe that God might be in this? And I think there must be two things that he's seen because they keep appearing over and over again in Acts up to this point. And the first thing I think we just have to acknowledge is that this is a growing movement. Uh, within a few short months, it began by reaching thousands of people. And then within a few more months, maybe a year or so, it's hard to tell exactly how much time has passed here. It's in the tens of thousands, as we've been seeing. And that kind of growth does make you wonder, is this God at work? But I don't think it's just growth. Thutis had growth. Judas the Galilean had growth, right? They had followers. And it doesn't seem from this speech that uh, Gamaliel even considered the possibility that God was at work 
in them. Uh, but he clearly does think it's possible that God is in work in the church, right? Well, why? I think it's not just the growth numerically. I think it's the growth spiritually. I think it's the spiritual transformation, the renovation of the way in which God's people are living in the world that does it. Because as the true church grew in number, it was producing a way of living that clearly looked and felt like the heaven that this Pharisee, this member of this Reformation movement in Israel that wanted God's people to live according to the commands of God and follow him and know him, that it felt a little bit like heaven. It was the life of discipleship that made Gamaliel wonder, is this really from God? Because the forgiveness they give looks like the forgiveness I see God give in the Bible. Their hospitality looks like God's hospitality. Their love of truth looks like God's love of truth. Their justice and their care for the needy, that looks like the God who says that he cares for the poor and the downtrodden and the outcast. Uh, their prayer life, their worship, their Sabbath rest, that all looks like the kind of life that God wants his people to lead, devoted to worship and to rest and to prayer and to the word. And so Gamaliel stands up and says, hey, brothers, this may in fact be God. The church just might be the place where God is living. God's life may well, in fact, be entering into the world through these people. And my friends, I just want us to notice that that question that Gamaliel has is not provoked by power or by strength, uh, by politics or by anger. It's provoked by the devotional life of God's people as they are transformed into a community of love and prayer and hospitality as they are following their Savior by faith. And that brings me to our very last point, which is going to be very short because I've already gone a little long. Uh, what does it mean to find joy in suffering for Jesus? And then how does this fit in with that devotional life? So um, while the Sadducees, like Amelia's idea, they still beat up the apostles as a warning we're told in verse 41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Uh, I said a couple of weeks ago that we shouldn't understand this kind of rejoicing as like happiness and giddiness and jumping up and down. Like, yay, they just got beat up, right? It hurt. No, their joy, I think, was much more like Jesus's joy, where the Bible says that Jesus had joy as he looked forward to the cross. But we also know that Jesus had great sadness and even fear because of the cross. Right? And neither sadness nor fear are sins. When the Bible says that Jesus had joy in going to the cross, it means that Jesus was glad that his suffering would enable him to give us to the Father. See, Jesus found joy both in the meaning of his suffering and in what his suffering would accomplish through my pain I will save my people and I will give them spotless to my Father as a gift and we will be together forever. I think something similar is going on here with the disciples. The disciples have joy because their suffering was used to bring the gospel to people, to bring it to the Sadducees and also to their neighbors. Uh, they weren't happy that they were beaten up, but they found joy in both the meaning of their suffering and in the purpose of their suffering. 
our pain has allowed us to give Jesus and to show Jesus to the Sadducees. It's been an opportunity to turn the other cheek, to return good for evil, and probably open up the doors to talk to people about the reason for the hope that lies within us. Why would you not respond with violence? Because Jesus and his mercy. And I want to end on this point because a large part of what it means to be in the church, which God, I do believe, has given for the life of the world, to give his life into the world, does require suffering. It requires the pain of acknowledging sin, which is not the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's not always so easy, especially when you're acknowledging it to people you deeply love and that you've deeply hurt. It requires the pain of forgiveness, which can be quite hard sometimes, depending on the kind of sin that was committed. It requires sacrifice. It requires difficult acts of love. It requires hard, sometimes repeated conversations as we seek to be hospitable and bring each other into our lives, though we are different and will remain different. Like we talked about in Ephesians a few years ago. And sometimes not often in the history of Christianity, as much as we like to talk about it, it requires enduring persecution as well. But I think usually it requires just the difficult life, normal life of giving and receiving each other in Christ. And my friends, I want us to understand that suffering is not meaningless. It is profoundly meaningful. The suffering we endure to live well together with Jesus is meaningful and it's purposeful it is a way that Jesus gives himself to us, through us, and in doing that to the world through us as a church. And so what I'm hoping we can step away with this morning is a commitment to devote ourselves to living for Jesus, even if it's painful. So like Gamaliel, the world around us will be encouraged to ask, like, is, is God there? And that like the crowds as they encountered the church, they would repent and join us as forgiven disciples of Jesus by faith. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we want to live together in such a way that our neighbors and family are forced to ask, is God among us? Uh, and even are moved to join us as we follow you because they see among us the very life of Christ being lived out before them. And so please help us to live together and to bear witness to Jesus faithfully together. Uh, even if it means hardship and suffering and sacrifice, please allow us to in, uh, embrace these with joy, not at the uh, difficulty, but in the result and in the knowledge that you are in them to work out that which pleases you. Now, Father, please bless us with the honor of having people come to faith in our Savior Jesus because of our life and ministry together. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.